0: Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of the Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Roti Chennai was a revelation to me. A simple bread dough is formed into balls, stretched very thinly, scrunched, spiraled, and finally reflattened. After being coated in ghee every step of the way, the flat bread is then fried and even more ghee. Finally, the hot, crispy, buttery layers are pulled apart and eaten. While new to me, this bread represents stability and family and love and home to my guest, Shakila. The bread connects her with her multicultural family that somehow made living together on one compound in Singapore work. The bread followed her to England and eventually the U.S., And finally, it was this bread that brought Shakila's American son back to his Singaporean roots. If any of us ever doubted the power of food, this episode will convince us that food is family, love, and memories. Now, do I pronounce your name Shakila? Shakila, yeah. Shakila, that is a beautiful name. Thank you. Is it Indian? It's actually, yes, it's an Indian Muslim name. Okay, yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. So yeah, let's talk about. Tell me how to pronounce this.
1: Okay, so the name of the flatbread is called in Malay, or we call it roti paratha.
0: Roti paratha, Sorry. and then what's the chennai?
1: The word chennai is roti chennai. There's two names for it, okay. so you'll hear it referred to either way. I grew up with it, just calling it roti paratha. Okay. And roti, as you probably already know, is just the word, generic word for
0: bread. Yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> exactly. I thought I was going to be making a flatbread until I started to read this recipe. <laughs> and I realized you had set a much bigger challenge in front of me. <laughs> I was going to say, did you did you do it? Yeah, I did. I did and do it. Did well, I mean, every other step in the recipe says, put more butter on, put more <laughs> ghee on. <laughs> so it was delicious, but I don't. Think it was the way your grandmother made
1: it oh I don't know It just t- as long as it tastes good that's really all oh all yeah yeah
0: it, it did it did taste good I think I have like five questions um okay. that we'll do at the end but yeah it was delicious because it was yeah it was flavorful and it's fried and wrong and it's fun to eat it is fun to eat <laughs> Yeah. You unroll it a little bit. So, um, yeah, it's, I
1: I will be honest with you when I, when I thought of making it, I was definitely scared myself.
0: (laughs) Well, that helps me to know. (laughs) So, um, Roti Chennai and Roti Paratha, Paratha. say it again. Yeah. Paratha. Paratha. Okay. Do they, uh, is there like a translation? Do they tell us anything about the bread?
1: So in India paratha is a type of bread but it's not the same what differentiates this bread is that layers of butter it's almost like um that rolling out really really thin and then rolling it up that's almost like a Puff pastry
0: style thing, you know, without actually being puff pastry. That is literally what I said to my son. Do you hear me taking on the British accent? I said, literally, <laughs> which is not how I say
1: the word. <laughs> no, but it's true, right? It's a puff pastry. That's with ex-
0: the- yeah. He said, What are you making? And I said, Well, it's the concept of puff pastry. It's just that the butter is melted and you put it in a different way and it doesn't take as much chilling.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Bear in mind that this was made in sort of tropical climates, you know? Right. I'm I'm from Singapore. On the equator, super hot, super humid. Right. Of course. I didn't even so think of that, but of course. In the days when I was eating this growing up, this this was made in these little hawker, I want to say hawker centers, really. But at this point, we still had stalls, you know? Yeah. You know, made in this like makeshift outdoor
0: kitchens sometimes, you know? Mm. So Singapore's in the tropics. And like you said, when I heard roti, I thought, okay, that's Indian. And mm-hmm. then I was like, well, you're in Singapore, which is right. not it, that near to <laughs> India. So yeah, tell me a little bit. I, I don't know very much about Singapore at all.
1: So Singapore is a tiny island, uh, yes. right at the bottom of Malaysia, a little mm-hmm. dot of Malaysia. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's, I think it's the only city-state in the world. Um, and predominantly, it, it's multicultural, but uh, three-quarters of the
0: population is of Chinese descent. See, now that's that's what I had associated with it. Yes.
1: Historically, you know, going back years, the indigenous people of Singapore, if that's what you want to call it, were Malays. Right. And, and even stepping back beyond that, there was a Hindu-Buddhist um, background. You know, we're oh, going back okay. years and years, you know. Okay. Um, but what eventually happened was Singapore was a British colony at one point.
0: Yes. Okay.
1: And therefore, with that came trade. I, I believe it was the East India Company you know. I see. Uh, and then a lot of people came from places like India and China and, and mainland to Singapore to work. So the Chinese came after the British? Um, yeah, there would have been Chinese people there that would have maybe traveled down there. But I my understanding is that I think a lot more non-indigenous settlers came okay. when the British uh, was ruling really, because they used it as a port, as a business center. I see. Yes. Yeah, so Singapore, if I remember rightly, didn't get its self-governance till about 1959 wow. and got its independence in the early 60s. Wow. Yeah. So in a very short time, it went from that to being, you know, a super modern, pretty wealthy nation. Isn't there a lot
0: of spectacular architecture yes. in Singapore?
1: Yes, lots of uh, beautiful uh, buildings and, and, you know, the high rise. You I mean, it's everything you imagine a metropolis should be. And it's beautiful because it's so green. And, and it's something mm. that Koreans do very well. They, it's
0: an extremely green place, you know. Mm. A green metropolis in the tropics. Yes, wow. I don't think I would ever have put those three words together. So yeah. what a Great description. That's really helpful. Mm. So, how about you? What's your so
1: my history? I yeah, well, I I must be like a third generation Singaporean. I was born there. Okay. Um, my parents were from Singapore, and my at my mom's side of the family, my mom's mother was also my grandma Nani, as I called her, was born in um in Singapore as well.
0: Okay, and this is the grandmother that we're going to talk about yes. today who made yes. this bread. Okay, yes. okay.
1: Yeah, she was born in the in the must be 1930 30s okay uh, and her parents were originally from other parts of asia her her father was of indian descent and her mother um was of indonesian and i think we think japanese or some asian descent
0: mm. okay so. and so but the roti chennai and roti paratha that's not so much from even though she happened to be of indian descent that's not so much from india descent. Well, that is like a classic sing or oh, no
1: so what's happened yeah so what's happened is my understanding is that we had a lot of you know non-indigenous people come along so a lot of indians indian muslims actually that come to singapore and over the years they okay. create this bread and this bread is very present from singapore roti Chennai or roti paratha whatever you want to call it <laughs> um is very specific to singapore and malaysia
0: Okay, Singapore and Malaysia. Singapore, okay,
1: that's what we eat, and it's something that's just anybody there would know it. You know, I got it. Let's talk about your grandmother, Nani. You called her. I called her Nani. Um, she had uh, quite a life, I think. Um, mm. As I age, I, I I I think I'm sort of I was kind of in awe of her. Mm. Uh, Mother, as a young lady, and then a mother and a grandmother, because I, I really understand what she went through. She was was married at the age of fourteen
0: mm.
1: in Singapore. My grandfather adored her. He was ten years older, and he always adored her. And she married for love. And she said, she you know she told me that she had definitely married the man for love. Mm. But it was also during the end, towards the end of the war in okay. Singapore, World War Two, and Singapore was an occupied was occupied by the Japanese okay yep um so it was a harsh regime yes Mm -hmm. and um I I am sure one of the things that went into the decision for getting married was it was as a married woman yeah um so because you know like the Japanese would come and do raids and my my mom used to tell my great grandmother would hide all the young cousins and the female in these big storm drains you know Mm. Um, so she married at fourteen. I think had my mom at fifteen. Amazing. But even though she had my mom, her sister, her older sister, I guess, had three kids, and she had passed away in childbirth with her last. Wow. Kid. And her husband, her brother-in-law, had had died during the war. So my grandma was instrumental in raising these three kids. At and she, fifteen, she yeah, had. Four children. So she, I mean, she had, she had her mom, my great grandmother, but still she, when she got married, she's, she took these kids, you know, and raised she, them with her own children. Wow. Yeah. So from a, yeah. And she, it, she, I think she gave birth to five kids Two wow. didn't survive, but they also adopted a child. So, okay.
0: she, yeah. So she had her sisters, three. Yeah, she had five, but two died, so that's three. So another six, mm-hmm. and then she adopted a seventh. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and she probably had all seven of those kids by the time she was what?
1: In her twenties, I would say. In
0: her twenties. <laughs>
1: yeah, twenties wow. like before definitely before thirty. Let's put it that way.
0: You know? Wow! Wow! So, at what point did you kind of grasp this is amazing?
1: <laughs> you know. I- It's interesting because whenever I went to my my mom's side of the family, my grandmother's house, it was just always full of people. Mm. That whole extended family and sort of like anybody walking in and just having waves and strays sometimes, you know, that whole household, it felt like the whole neighborhood at one point lived like that. Um, So my mom's family, even though my my grandfather, my mom's father was of Indian descent and my grandmother was mixed, you know, Mm -hmm. they we they grew up in a Malay culture.
0: Okay, okay, Um, And when you talk about this very communal atmosphere at her house, (laughs) is that just something that was part of her culture or was that something that was really part of her personality? She just had this.
1: Yeah, I think it was a combination of both. It seemed to me that the culture is very open and very welcoming.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And she just, it was also part of her. I, she just took people in. And I—and and in some ways, I'm glad I get a chance to tell her story, because I don't think she ever saw herself as, I don't know how to say this, but she just got on and did it. Yes. You know, she mm-hmm. sort of humbled herself a little bit. mm. When I look back on it now, I think, oh, my God, she put food on the table. She raised her kids. Then the grandkids came along, you know, and, we, and they lived in, in a big group. Like my my uncle and aunts at one point lived with her. So there's all these, there were always kids. And then we had second cousins and third cousins, you know, living in the vicinity. So there was always people. Everything was like a communal event at my grandmother's uh, home.
0: <laughs> that is really extraordinary. Yeah. Yes. It's such a motivating factor for me with this podcast is to honor these unsung lives <laughs> mm-hmm. that are, they're the ones that are really awe-inspiring, right?
1: Yes. And as I said, as you, as I've aged and also I've aged and I, I grew up very differently as in in my household and I've and I've crossed the world, you know, I've crossed many oceans to get here mm-hmm. and I lead such a different life, but I know my life is so The way I lead my life is so informed by those early years,
0: Mm. you know, Mm.
1: it's like written into my DNA.
0: Right, right. Literally. Yeah, literally. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Did she cook all the time or was Um, that something everybody did together, giving her time to do other things?
1: They all cooked all the time. They They
0: all cooked all the time.
1: (laughs) Because there was a big family to feed. um, Yeah. And we never quite knew who was showing up. Um, uh, And so, you know, think about it. They they lived as an extended family. Uh, So they were always cooking. My memories is that when my mom used to drop me off at my grandmother's for the weekend or, you know, to stay, we would get up and, and somebody would have gone to the market and they would always be cooking. I could literally go from my grandmother's place and have breakfast. And then I could just walk across the (laughs) courtyard to my cousin's, second cousin's house, and I'd get more food there. You Get
0: second breakfast.
1: (laughs) That's literally what it was like. And then before you knew it, they were prepping lunch. (laughs)
0: That's amazing.
1: Yeah, it was the days when, you know, and everything was done by hand. Right. Um, Grinding the spices down, onion, ginger, garlic, chilies. All the spaces that was all done with uh, granite mortar and pestles and you know these rolling pin type things. Um, so it, it was it was a very interesting time for me because I grew up in a household that it was just my parents and my siblings and we were very my parents were very big on education. Mm. You know, I would almost say like a compared to my grandma like a modern household if that's possible right. to say right. And my mom and dad had very clear ideas about how you know wh- where we were educated, how we behaved, and you know. Yeah. Kind of my grandmother's so, house. I'm running around like a crazy kid. You know?
0: So was that ever in conflict that that was your parents' type of household? Um, but if- interestingly, no, because my mother knew
1: exactly what was, you know what she was letting us go to. Yeah. And she had very strict rules. She was like, "You are not to leave the compound. You're not going to cross the road to the little store across the road to buy candy."
0: OK, I so it, it. <laughs> OK, so when it was when you were in the home with your parents, yeah. it was it was one life calm and, uh, you know, um okay. Kate-
1: don't get me wrong. My, my mother is a great cook. So we still had all of that going on. Right. She wasn't, like surrounded by all these relatives and everybody knew everybody. Everybody's looking after everybody else's child. You know?
0: Right. Um, I, I, I still have to wonder, though, if that was hard from your mother to pull away from. Like, was she expected to stay on the compound you know, with everyone? No, my mother was always very, very.
1: Um, my mom had quite personality and she was a strong <laughs> personality and she was, my mother was like the life and soul of the party. You know, she knew very clearly she, she wanted, her, how she wanted her kids to behave and, you know, what she will and will not put up with. And I think, I think my mom encouraged us to spend time with my grandmother because she really wanted us to see a completely different way of life. Okay. And that there was no, you know, we had, we had no heirs and graces at my grandmother's house because at this point of her life, they didn't have a lot of money and there were lots of people living there. So sometimes, you know, when all the grandkids came, we would sleep on the floor, Mm -hmm. you know, my grandma. And she had these, um, I remember she had these like blankets and they were white and very soft. And I, and they had prints on them. And I said to her, what are these? And she says, Oh, they're like flower, the flower sacks. (gasps) Wow. She had a fairly comfortable life when she first married my grandfather. Mm -hmm. But my grandfather himself was a character.
0: (laughs) okay
1: and and drank and you know wine women and song and lost a lot of his uh, fortune oh wow so my mom had experienced both ends of the spectrum you know Mm. she was very comfortable and then in high school things got really rough Mm. (laughs) she understood what it was to have not to not have Mm. uh, a lot Mm. Uh, but one thing they always did have just to go back is is food always no matter what on The food was always present and and it was a range, you know, it was a range of food depending on what they could
0: afford. (laughs) Right. How did your grandmother cope with? I I mean, it's not just the finances. It's like there's the emotional burden of caring for seven kids without someone really
1: present don't get me wrong as crazy as my grandfather was he was a personality (laughs) okay and people loved him we'd always had people around the house and he was extremely again very generous what was interesting was that you you go to their homes no matter how little they had they always managed you know to get food wise and the emotional side for her i mean having an extended family brings its issues but it also
0: brings a lot of support I've always wondered about that a little bit. It can go either way.
1: Yes. And I think for her, that's what she was used to. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were moments, I think, as I aged and I saw her, I could see sometimes the difficulty and the pain, but she just so uh, stoic, I guess, you know? Yeah. She took joy in her grandchildren. Yeah. Um, And, you know, she did have her daughter-in-laws her sons there you know some and there was an extended family and they will in the end they would be like all right whatever your family so let's let's just move on you know yeah
0: is that the thing like do you just
1: uh, listen I'm not saying I'm like (laughs)
0: yeah but I mean there are entire cultures that are predicated yes on this family model
1: this is all she's ever known though you know I don't, I say she knew nothing else. I don't want to make it sound like she was, you know, but that was her world. Her world is different from the way we look at the world today. We all have, you know, we have a plethora of choices.
0: Yeah. Do you, you know? think that people curbed their personalities a little bit in order to fit in? Or is it just, I think their personalities maybe came out in different ways. You know, it's funny
1: because I think of my, my grandmother and I think of my aunts who, you know, my, my mom's, uh, sister-in-laws who lived with my grandmother Mm. I, they, they all had very distinctive personalities, mm. very distinctive. There was nothing homogenous about any, either, of, you know, all of them. Yeah. And they came from different parts. Like one of my aunts was, Jeff was um, Indonesian. One was definitely born in Brennan, Singapore. And was like,
0: you know, again, life of the party type girl, you know. Well, that's, and that's really interesting because you were bringing, ooh, you were, you were doing that type of family model. With a multicultural family.
1: Yes. So what I will say this that the, the thread that ran through my mom's family and my and my dad's family they were Muslim families. Okay. Mm, so okay. that's common enough. But let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> that said, my yeah. mom's family and my dad's family were two completely different beings. You know, two different animals. Yeah. yeah. Especially in today's world, they they see the word Muslim or they see Islam, and they they just view it
0: as one thing. Right. Right. No, there's many different, I mean, just like Christianity, there's different, <laughs> there's different <Yeah>. brands. But, <laughs> yeah, you know. People. people are just different, you know, <laughs> people are different and family dynamics are different Exactly. and cultures are different. So cultures exactly. are going to bring something when a culture and a religion meld, right. A religion is adapted to a culture and a people group, you know,
1: I'm, I'm glad you said that because I mean, that was definitely true for me growing up In the Far East, growing up in the Far East as a Muslim, to me, Mm. was different to what I see today going on today here.
0: That's interesting.
1: Yes, people dress modestly, but they dress differently. And now today you will see more of the, you know, the coverings and and what had the hijab and stuff. And before it was sufficient, most of the Malays would just, or even the Indians would just throw a scarf over their head. You know what I mean? Very Mm. loosely. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like two different worlds. My mom's family, you know, spoke Malay. Um, they, they would wear Western clothing as well. But my grandmother would wear you know, sarongs and what have you. My dad's family spoke Hindi. They spoke Jurati. They mm. uh, spoke Urdu. They would wear Indian outfits. Mm. So I was living in two <laughs> different ends of the spectrum almost.
0: But it didn't feel conflicted to you as a child.
1: Not so much. I think I just learned to juggle it. I just accepted it for what it is. Well, I was always amazed as a child. And as I got older, I'd be like, these two come from very different backgrounds. But yet look at them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My parents, it was um, their 52nd wedding anniversary.
0: Yeah. March twenty eighth. That's amazing! Congratulations to them. Um, going back to the logistics of all the cooking in your grandmother's home. Was going to the market a daily thing?
1: Um, yes, when I was growing up, certainly if not daily, at least uh, maybe once or twice a week. Because at that time in Singapore, we you know we have wet markets still. So wet people- markets. What is that? You could go to market and you get your vegetables and what have you, but you could also go get your meat, your fish, and you can literally say, "I want that chicken." (laughs) Yeah, and the fish was all freshly caught, you know, every day. I mean, so yeah, it was definitely an everyday, if not a few times a day, and depending on how many people you had to feed too, you know.
0: Right, which you never really knew.
1: It was definitely the true Asian thing. You you can go to someone's house; they will always feed you. (laughs) Yes. You said
0: everybody was cooking all the time, it which felt really. Like a child, that's what it felt like. Well, it probably <laughs> felt that way to the women. So, no, well, and that is a question. I'm making an assumption. I, I do assume it was the women.
1: So, the, it's interesting, um, actually, you should say that. So, the day to day cooking, I uh-huh. would say, yes. Uh, it was still women. But let me tell you something. When I when I got married, oh, 20-odd years ago now, obviously I was living in England, we went home to Singapore and my grandmother wanted to throw a huge reception. Mm. My uncles cooked. Your uncles cooked? My 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 mom's family, a lot of the men can cook. Do they, they learn as children? I, I guess they must do. And they cook these biryanis and stuff like that, sort of oh, elaborate wow. dishes that you'd serve. Uh, and I think we had... I don't quite know how this happened. It's 700 people, I think, came What? throughout the day. Yeah. Yeah. Throughout the day. It's a very open thing. Wow. I have a big family and they know a lot of people.
0: It's it's like a big family, but a small town.
1: Yes. Yes. My elementary school teacher came, Um, which was actually lovely. It was so good to see her because she was one of my
0: favorites. Oh, that's, um, that really is lovely. Yeah. That really is. Now, did you cook as a child or was that you just played?
1: I, I played, I would watch, uh, but I definitely was definitely connected to the food. For example, in our home, we had, I remember very clearly having a lemongrass plant, you know, and, and playing with that. Cause that's very sharp. The lemongrass. Really? putting myself on it all the time. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you didn't learn. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Nothing learn. And we had a, something, I don't know what they call it in England, but we used to call it a custard apple tree. Fully ripe, you can literally open it and it's soft in the inside and it's sweet and you could just, and things were seasonal. So there was the durian
0: season. Have you ever, I've heard about the durian. Well,
1: during durian season, you know, people would uh, just sit around and eat that. Food was big. Food is like at the center of just
0: about every major event. <laughs> Yeah. The durian, that's the one that stinks really badly, right? Yeah,
1: It really does. It's funny. I, I do understand what people mean by it, but it tastes incredible. And I've never eaten anything on this planet that has that flavor. And you get used to this smell, just like everything.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and if you knew what taste was going to come after yeah. the smell, you would associate it differently, right?
1: Yeah. And that's my—that's the thing I probably miss most, the, the tropical fruits, the mangosteens, the rambutans, the lychees, you know, and all those sort of things that I had them all the time, you know.
0: Mm. Now, when it comes to this roti parantha, you associate that with your dad also.
1: So my father traveled a lot. Um, yeah. And so he was away so much. So at the weekends when he came home, it was like a big, you know, a, a big to do sort of thing.
0: Mm. What um, did your dad
1: do? My father is uh, he, an aeronautics engineer. So he'd been all over the world. So my childhood was definitely informed by that as well, you know, the traveling and the food. He used to take us out on Sundays or Saturdays and we would go eat Prada in the mornings and probably just to get out from my, under my mother, you know. <laughs> he, he would literally have us 24-7 for sometimes he'd be away for two or three months, you know. That's amazing.
0: Yeah, your yeah. mom was, shoot, your mom had to have all those rules. Yes. Yes. I think that's
1: that's part of the issue. Um, She had very clear. I think she always had very clear views. She always wanted to be a mom. Mm. For her, she said if she could have had more children, she would have,
0: you know. How many of you were there?
1: There was only three of us. Uh, My father was enough.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. To travel all the time. That makes such a difference.
1: You know, again, food was the center of our house. My mother was an amazing cook, thanks to her mom and her grandma. Um, and she actually said to me um, when I was talking about this, she said, oh, d- when I learned to cook, your great grandmother would give us the ingredients and say, OK, you've watched enough times. Go ahead. And she said, if they didn't get it right and it didn't taste right, she would throw it out and make them start again. <gasps> and she said, my, my mom was like, we didn't have a lot of money, so that was not going to work. And she goes, and nothing was written down.
0: Wow. I feel like that could ruin a love of cooking
1: you know what you would think <laughs> but, <laughs> but no because i think it's so inbred in the family and in the culture and even in singapore singapore is you know food is like the national religion in singapore yeah it it truly is i mean if you flew to singapore and you didn't eat at any of the hawker centers and and things like that you, i mean why would you go <laughs>
0: That's the destination, food.
1: And, you know, so my mom was such a good cook. She could cook Indian food. She could cook Chinese food. She could cook Malay food. So, you know, and that that was helpful when we moved to England. So that's yes. how we could keep connection. Did she learn all of those different types from your yeah, grandmother? Definitely all the Malay dishes and certain uh-huh. South Indian dishes. She would probably, she learned from my, from my grandmother and uh, great grandmother. Now, just by the fact of being a Singaporean, she was curious enough to learn some of the Chinese dishes because she would eat that outside, you know, yeah. the noodles and stuff like that. And when she married my dad, she said he brought you know a, a, another aspect to food. So my father's family is Indian, probably more northern Indian, fairly rich, lots of ghee. I can remember that. Uh. <laughs> um, and so what my mom said, you know they would do things like a they would make a doll, but there was a specific type of breakfast doll. Wow. It's funny. Um, she never sort of lost her roots. In her teens, my grandfather's finances sort of yeah. went to hell in a handbasket. And yeah. uh, at that time with younger siblings, you know, food was, was important, but it, they didn't have all the money in the world. Yeah. Um, so they learned to cook with what they had. And she, my mom would say to me some days it was, you know, rice, ghee, soy sauce and fried eggs. And the one thing is that when my dad left, when my dad left to travel, we would get all this, what I would call poor man's food. <laughs> my mom would like, all right, I'm getting that dried, um, salted, preserved fish out and we're going to fry that. <laughs> you know? All, all the stuff I
0: call poor man's food. Yeah. But I want to hear, you painted such a vivid picture mm-hmm. of your dad mm-hmm. and your your breakfast dates on Saturdays yes. with him eating Yes. this roti and I. yeah, so, tell me about that.
1: So we would go to this one place I remember, and I double checked this with my mom. <laughs> This weekend, just to yeah. make sure my memory wasn't, you know, off. She, she said, "Oh yeah," she said it was just outside a wooden, almost shack-like building across the storm drains, you know, and it was again the Indian Muslim men. Yeah, you know they they would run the show. Um, yeah, would sit with my dad, and I told you about the tea. Um, they make cha- what we call chai today here. Uh huh. In Malay, we call it teh te- tarik, and tarek is literally the Malay word for sort of pull. So what they would do is like take the hot tea in one container, put it up in the air and sort of pour it through the air and catch it in another. Just do this very quickly. It almost looked
0: like a little sideshow, you know? Well, that's the thing. Was it, I mean, was there a purpose to cool it or was it just to to be?
1: Yeah. I I always thought it was just to cool it. I don't know if it aerated the tea, whether it added to the flavor, you know? Okay. Um, but it, I, I think, you know, the practical thing was that it helped cool it.
0: Okay. So the same, they sold it at the same, you called it a stall. Right?
1: Yeah. Still, so in, when I was growing up in Singapore, you would still get these roadside stalls in certain places and pe- people started to get to know them. Mm-hmm. And even in, in my much younger days, they would get like a cart sometimes in certain neighborhoods, especially my grandma's neighborhood. Cause my grandma grew up in more like a little, I want to use the word village. Mm. But it wasn't a village, but it was just where you'd get people coming through, selling food, you know, Mm -hmm. on a cart. Sometimes in the evenings, they would call out, you know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the stalls you'd find in Singapore. In today's world, most of these are in what we call hawker centers Mm. in Singapore, which are like, say, covered, but maybe open to the outside elements. And all these stalls you can find in this place. So what would happen, it would be like a food court
0: almost. Yes, I was going to say, or almost like. Um, when we were in San Francisco, we went to like a food truck park, so yeah.
1: So the government, you know, being the Singaporean government decided, okay for health and safety and all these things, food safety, they brought all these hawkers in. And it's got to the point now where Singaporeans will literally go, if you want to eat chicken rice, which is another major dish in Singapore, people will argue about which stall to go to, where, you know, and where to eat satay. I mean, they're Michelin. I think there's a couple of stalls in Singapore that actually these hawker centers that actually have one Michelin star.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. You Do know? they also have what we traditionally think of as restaurants there? Or as if you're yeah. not eating at home, okay. No, no, no. So what's
1: happened in Singapore, so they definitely have restaurants. They have high-end restaurants. They have, you know, middle-of-the-road restaurants. And they have these hawker centers. Hawker centers are normal, and they're open at all hours. People will go for breakfast, lunch, and sometimes they'll eat 11, 12 o'clock at night. You know, yeah, yeah. eating is like a national pastime.
0: Yeah. uh, are you getting the idea i'm getting that i i I am but you know and this is uh, but obesity is not a problem there
1: not such a problem and i i can't have worked out i think it's probably more of a problem today than it was Mm -hmm. Uh, i think in the olden days people probably walk a lot more in the heat sometimes the food tastes so good and so intense you don't actually need huge portions of it Mm. the thing about um a lot of these hawkers is that So I would go to maybe one place to eat chicken rice, or I might go to one place to eat a particular noodle, you know, um, or something like that. That, That's all these people do. Mm. So think about it. For some people, Mm. that can be 30, 40, 50 years, family generations that just cooked that one dish. They perfected it. Yes. They're not trying to be a jack of all trades. Right. And there lies the difference, I think, sometimes. Well, I think you're right. Yeah. Mm. That's why the food thing is my mom has an ability to cook Mm. and I can't explain it. My mom, about two or three years ago, I went home to England in the summer and uh, my dad's relatives actually, my dad's side of the family had come from Singapore and um, my mom was cooking all these Singapore dishes and I'm like, mom, why would they ask you to cook this? She goes, they've just flown all the way from Singapore, but they said they wanted my mom to cook her way, her style, you know.
0: Hmm.
1: So she definitely has that. A
0: talent. She's a genius yeah. for it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And that's been, yeah. uh, when I look back on it now, when I was younger, I'd be like, oh, really? Do I really have to clean up? Do I have to chop these vegetables? You know, mm-hmm. do I really have to slice onions? Now I'm so grateful because that was my connection to my roots.
0: Mm, right, exactly. Yeah. So let's talk about that because at some point you left.
1: How How old were you? So I moved to England when I was about 11.
0: 11. Okay.
1: And I, and then my formative years, my teenage years and my early twenties, you know,
0: were all in England. And I assume this was for your dad's job.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, My dad worked uh, at Heathrow in in London. So we moved to England. And to be honest with you, I I still refer to England as home. When I talk about going home, I talk about going to England because my parents are there. My siblings are there.
0: Okay. Yeah. And like you said, your mom brought all this food (laughs) with um, her.
1: Yeah, all these cooking methods and certain foods. Sometimes, you know, we used to go home to Singapore every year, and I'm pretty sure she had a ton of food stuff in her bag.
0: Oh, of course. <laughs>
1: <But> now <laughs> she doesn't need it, but because it's so readily available.
0: Right, right. But yeah, she must have missed those flavors so dearly. Yes,
1: yes. And my, so my, the way, you know, other than my mom cooking herself at home, my my dad would take drive us into London to Chinatown. Mm-hmm. on a fairly regular basis, at mm-hmm. least a couple of times a month mm-hmm. to, on a Sunday to eat at the Chinese restaurants. And go ahead. And we, we, we would also go to a place called South Hall where they had a lot of Indian restaurants right but because I came from Singapore, which is a real mix. I bizarrely the, the, the noodles and things like that are what I missed. you know so the Chinese these restaurants in Chinatown, you know the, the dim sum, all those sort of things.
0: You miss the Chinese food more than the Indian food.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because maybe because my mom could cook Indian food so well, else you oh. we wouldn't, like, we wouldn't make dim sum at home.
0: You right.
1: You know, even, even, yeah. even in Singapore, you would go out for dim sum. Yes. You know?
0: Yeah. Was uh, the Indian food that you ate as a child in Singapore similar to what you found in the curry houses?
1: No, it wasn't. Um, I don't think I had chicken tikka masala till I went to England.
0: okay. <laughs> Actually,
1: uh, like, you know how you have some Chinese uh, dishes here that you would never find in China?
0: Fortune cookies.
1: <laughs> yeah, stuff like that, you know, like chow mein. You know? <laughs> Chicken tikka masala is actually, we, we uh, the Brits will say that was the British invention, you know. Of- really? But, but the thing is, don't forget, that the Brits had a colony.
0: Yeah. So you felt connected to Singapore, both by frequent trips back, but also by eating the same food.
1: Food. Yeah, it was the food that held us together. Because even when my parents had friends from that part of the world and other expatriates, Mm. people that transplants, it was the food. We'd get together and we would eat.
0: Mm. Did you find that you lived in kind of a mini Singapore when you got to England? Or did you find that you really had to... You know what I'm saying? So again, I'm thinking. I understand
1: of- what you're saying because having moved a number of times. No, no, I didn't. I didn't. Hmm. My parents, actually, my parents were very, um, my father, you know, said, no, you, you're living in England. You assimilate, mm. you know, and also, you know, it's also slightly different because people used to see the color of my skin and my name and they assume I'm Indian and I am, I'm Indian. You know, I'm not hiding that fact, but yeah. I was from Singapore and it was a little different.
0: Yeah. Genetically, you're Indian. Yeah. So my view... But that doesn't mean that you fit in with your Indian friends at school because you were from a different culture. Right.
1: So I I happened to, my
0: father happened
1: to to, to rent a house and I went to school where it was predominantly white,
0: Mm.
1: upper middle class, white. So I just had to fit in. You know, I I had to. It wasn't always easy. Racism was there, you know. Also, it's different. I come from Singapore where the first language is English. You know, people are like, oh, you speak English so well. And I'm like, why wouldn't I? You know? mm. <laughs> it's my first language. It's the Queen's English.
0: Mm-hmm. It was hard. Initially. Did you know it was hard at the time? You know what I mean? Like, were yeah, you like. Yeah. I, it's, so this is,
1: you know, as a tangent off from food. Yes, it was. I, I, I it, it was hard. I, you know, um, stood out the color of my skin. I definitely, you know, faced racism. hmm but then again, I also found these set of friends that didn't seem to care. You know, they, they were, well, I just, I don't know how to say it. I just got on with it. Well,
0: yeah, well, you know what? You've got a little bit of your grandma in you. Just got on with
1: it. Yeah. Just yeah. got on with it. And I knew, you know, but it, it's funny. I, maybe I didn't think so hard at the time. But when I look back on it, you know, when, when you're looking for a job, you always had to be, as a person of color, it's in the back of your head, you, you sort of have to be better. And I always did. I always strive to be the best, you know, and um, just. To push yourself to, but I never, I never made any apologies for that. I, I, I definitely, when I went to college, again because the color of my skin, you know, as female and my name, there were a lot of Asian. Well, in 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 England, we call people from the Indian subcontinent Asians as opposed to Indians. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, like, uh, and I think I think they were kind of stunned. I'm I'm pretty forceful in my opinions, and I outspoken. I didn't feel the need to be surrounded by people of the same color, you mm-hmm. know. So I definitely had a little, not pushback, but they were a little
0: taken aback, you know. Maybe it's even more in retrospect that you realize how wrong some of these things were. Completely. But we were living Mm. in a different time.
1: I mean, I did have to get on with it. And I was lucky. I didn't, you know, I I think there were people who suffered far more than me. I I hate Mm. to say it. I think socioeconomic status.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely.
1: You know, Mm -hmm. Um, and I came from a, I would say, very middle class background. You know, my parents, my my father had a good job. You know, we were we were in good schools. I definitely know friends who came from much more of that immigrant experience. Mm-hmm. You know, parents came maybe didn't speak the language as well. They would start by owning small shops, things like that. I didn't mm-hmm. have that
0: experience. You right. Know? Right. <laughs> okay. So, did the transition from Singapore to England? help you deal with the transition from the UK to the US.
1: Um yes, yes. I mean, I always knew in from a very young age I wanted to live in more than one place.
0: Okay.
1: My father traveled a lot. So he that that wanderlust, he sort of planted that in us.
0: Okay. This is really interesting because you're kind of exposing a bias I have because in my <laughs> mind I'm thinking of this as a series of losses, but that is not the well, way you see it.
1: No, I, I, not at all. Um, I, I don't see it as a loss. I just think it's progression and and change,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, because change mm-hmm. comes to us all, whether we like
0: it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and whether we invite it or fight it.
1: Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, listen, I will say this, though. I mean, the, the move from England to America, the <laughs> um, two countries divided by the same language sometimes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I did struggle a little bit with that because I, I was always, you know, I, I love London and we were living on the outskirts of London at that time. My, you know, Sean, my husband, and then we lived in New York city. And then when I moved out to the suburbs here, even though it's only 12 miles from the city, I was like, Oh
0: boy. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> how, a- how old were you for each of those moves? So you and Sean left. Uh, yeah. We Sean, We were, I think we were probably
1: about 27, 20, maybe okay. 28, 29 when we moved to New York city. But we've been in the States now. Like, I'm now 51. So, wow. yeah, I've been in the States a long time. So, in theory, you would think... It's the States is home. If I'm in England, I refer to this as home.
0: I know what you mean, though. Yeah. I know what you mean, though. I know what you mean. I'm shaped... I'm definitely British.
1: Mm. Definitely. You know, my there's something about me, my sense of humor that mm. drives to humor. It's still very British, you know. Mm.
0: Uh, yeah, uh, I'm thinking about the you know, it's kind of like that boiling a frog syndrome. It all seemed like reasonable moves and small changes. But then when you think about your childhood running around a compound of family where everyone was cooking all the time to a life in New York City with no extended family, and you had really even put away your cooking for a little while.
1: Yeah, I did. And um, I could still cook. So I would still cook what I needed to cook it wasn't you know super elaborate or anything like that but this but to go back to this one dish I always scared of doing it just as you were scared
0: yes
1: (laughs) (laughs) and because I had these memories of my grandmother just sit you know the grandkids sitting around her while she made these things that seemed to she had like she could do it really artistically she could stretch this dough so thinly that you could
0: see your face through it you know (laughs) Mm, yeah it was almost like mythological to you at that point
1: Yes, and it was, and that's how I kind of remember it. And she would talk to us while she's doing it. And then when it came to cooking it, I mean, the poor woman would spend hours, like it seemed like hours preparing all these breads and we would devour it. In,
0: yeah, you <laughs> carried some guilt with you also from your childhood <laughs> that you had to work through before you could make this. It's
1: almost like a little, yeah. <laughs> to come back to that, the, the thread there is that my son, who again, as I said, you know, born and bred American. hmm would still go home to see my family. So he knew, you know, he knew the roots, but he loved this bread. Mm. Now, and did he get to meet your grandmother? Uh, only when he was very, very young. He doesn't really remember her. Okay. When he was two, I took him to Singapore, you know, and she she passed away. Mm. after. So, um, But he just, you know, because my mom is such a good cook, you know, she would cook. Mm. But he loved this bread and we used to be able to buy it at the Asian supermarket. Mm-hmm. And Mm. he just, but I remember eating it a few times and I'm thinking, okay, this is close, but there's something about it that isn't right. Mm. Finally, he kept saying, mom, I really like it. I really like it. And then one day after spending hours on the internet, trying to find something that looked reasonable, that made sense. I thought, okay, let me give this a go, (laughs) you
0: know, and I did it. And I was beyond thrilled. Your first experience, no problems. Yeah. Do you know what? My first experience, no problem. I was so surprised. That's amazing. Did you kind of kick yourself and say, why did I wait so long? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Was it emotional for you to make it? So so the last couple of
1: years, I suddenly decided I would just slow down a little. Mm -hmm. And with that, I started baking Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and I'd never been a baker, really. Mm -hmm. You know, a cake mix here and there and a few things here and there. But when I was growing up, that's another thing we would my during Eid or Ramadan, you know, the end of Ramadan, mm-hmm. the Malays call it Hari Raya. When Eid came around, everybody would make little cakes and biscuits and I would sit around with my the women in the family and help. So that that memory really stuck with me.
0: Mm-hmm. And I remember
1: thinking, oh, I would love to be able to do that one day, you know, mm-hmm. And I just kept thinking it over and over again over the years. <laughs> And then a couple of years ago, I I sort of simplified everything and I thought, okay, let me try. And I started baking. Again, nothing fancy. In fact, I kind of like the home baked look. I agree. I agree.
0: Yeah. Now you didn't find like a community of women to do it with, like you had before you went and did it by yourself.
1: Here, I I, I don't. I have women that love to eat, (laughs) (laughs) but not so much women that really want to bake with me. Yeah. So this is what happens. I would just make these. One thing I made was this peanut butter cookies, chocolate Mm -hmm. chip peanut butter. My friends love, they love it. And one of my friends who doesn't even like peanut butter was like, you really need to do something with this. And I'm like, I don't know. And she kept saying to me, you know what, just set up an Instagram page and just post your pictures. And I was like, why would anyone even be remotely interested <laughs> in what Shakila is doing in the deepest, darkest New Jersey? You know, and, uh, so but one day when I, I made this bread and it was the first time I actually thought, I don't know, I don't know what it was. And I posted it on my personal Instagram page. Yeah. And I videoed it. My son videoed it. And I made a slideshow. And I posted it. And I wrote the story. And I said I just gave thanks to all the people who were patient and kind enough to share space with me in their kitchens when I was growing up. Because mm. really they did.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, my grandmother who made every you know everything that came out of a kitchen was made with love. Yeah. And I could yeah. taste it. Yeah. And I wrote this piece and I, I couldn't believe it. And then that was the time after that. That's when I started my Instagram page, Adventures in Flour. Oh, and that's
0: such it, a great it, story. It was
1: only after I did this this recipe. When I did this recipe, I thought I can do this. I mean, it's not, I'm not, listen, I'm not professional baker or, I, or claim to be any of those But things. I don't
0: think it matters. I don't, I, I really don't. I really don't. And it gives me joy, you know. Uh-huh. And other people, all your friends. Yeah,
1: I, I definitely. This is done with m- literally my my friends and my son and my family. You know, people I call family in mind when I when I bake. I, it really isn't done with any other. There's no other ulterior motive. <laughs>
0: yeah. Now, yeah. when you make it, do you? Well, okay. Let's start talking about the recipe yeah. and how to make it. And my my big fail. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you fail. <laughs> I think I, I didn't fail where I thought it i where i thought i was going to and i and i have to also say i watched a recipe um i watched a video
1: that's what i did yeah yeah because i just wasn't sure i I think it's a it's a very simple process of just you know flour a little bit of condensed milk water i can't even remember all the ingredients yeah it is i don't even let it rise because it's no yeast in it you just put it in the fridge overnight let it sit
0: yeah. And do you think the resting do you know? Do you No, I you think know? It, I think you do have to rest it. I, I once remember
1: trying to do it instead of doing it overnight and just taking it out the next day in the afternoon. And I tried to do it in
0: a few hours and it didn't come out right. Yeah, I didn't rest it.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. I think if you did it in a way it's an easy recipe if you just put it all together the night before and just stick yeah. it in the fridge. And when I when I make this, I don't even think about it's too much butter. <laughs> Oh, no. I just, I, w- I just stick that thing of ghee next to me, a little container, and as I'm forming the balls, you know, I just put them in, like, cover them in ghee, and then bring them out the next day, yeah. pat them out. Just, I just keep putting it more on, you know?
0: Yeah, and do you mind just um explaining, I, when oh, I was sure. getting the ghee out, my husband was like, oh, I don't know, you know, he didn't know, so tell, tell oh, us. Okay. So what it is, is butter has milk
1: fats in it. Right. When you cook butter or you heat butter up, you'll see the bubbling... Mm -hmm. white bits come to the top so ghee is just when you cook the butter and you've taken the milk fats out of it hence clarified butter Mm -hmm. and and it's so simple to do
0: i've never made ghee before when you do that process do you do anything with the leftover milk fats so
1: i would typically get some unsalted butter Uh uh-huh let it come you know slowly melt and let it you'll see it bubble up people do it in different ways i start skimming off that sort of scum, scummy milk fat off the
0: top. Okay. What kind of tool do you use to do that? I use an old spoon. (laughs) Okay. Nothing fancy. This doesn't have to be intimidating. This
1: is not, this is not meant to be intimidating. And then over time, sometimes you can even do it like a brown butter. You know how some people do brown butter and milk fats sink to the bottom. Some people do it that way. Oh, okay. And then you can strain it. Some people strain it to cheesecloth. uh, if, If there's any milk fats left. Mm-hmm. That's coming I mean, it, it strains. So I just strain it through a to a small little strainer I have and I let it sit and then I restrain it again, you know. So that if there was any milk fats left in that first straining, it sinks to the bottom.
0: Okay. What's the benefit to having ghee on hand versus butter?
1: So because you're taking the milk fats out, mm. it's uh, a more stable product. Okay, so again. Go it, rancid.
0: Yeah, it goes back to this idea of being in the tropics. There's exactly. not exactly yeah
1: used a lot in, in in indian food um
0: as the basis isn't that amazing to you that somebody just figured that out like oh this keeps going bad but if i'll <laughs> if i heat it up and take this off then it won't turn bad who figures that out
1: No, don't know i you think about that because the ghee's been around a long time you
0: know <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah well you just solved a big mystery for me i've always wondered yeah okay so yeah so you make the dough and then let it sit
1: okay, okay so you let it rest so this is the difficult bit i think
0: yeah, you take it out and
1: then you you make it into little balls. And what you take the little balls and then you start to pat it out. And you literally can pat it out with the palm of your hands and pull it and pull it. It's a bit like pizza dough,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but usually they would fling it in the air, the pizza maker, mm-hmm. to thin it out. But you're not flinging it in the air. You're just slowly pulling it out. And you, the more that's why the ghee. The ghee helps it stretch. Yeah. The gluten. Yeah. I will tell you this. When I. First made this recipe, this was the bit that scared me most.
0: Well, okay. Mine got very thin actually pretty easily, but I actually started to rip it. (laughs) So Uh, which is which side is worse to make it real thin but accidentally rip or like (laughs)
1: it's it depends. I mean, inevitably sometimes you just rip it. I mean it does get ripped at the end sometimes, you know, it's just final stages. So what happens? It in a way it doesn't really matter because you then have to you, so now you've got this great big thin pastry stretched out, right? Yep. And then you start to scooch it back in, and then you scooch it in from the other side. Yes. But it does, the, the rip bits are not the end of the world.
0: Yes, and that's that's the thing. I thought, okay, well, this is working out all right. Yeah. I'm not going to worry about it too much. <laughs> I
1: mean, you don't want it. You don't want it ripped all over the place, but a little bit of ripping is, at the end of it is fine, you know. Because I do but, remember seeing that as a child as well, my grandma.
0: That it would rip sometime. Yeah. okay not not huge rips just little you know yeah they were just little ones and I think Mm -hmm. but then it wasn't as good as I thought it was because and see I think this is the difference between not resting because the edges when I started to scooch it back together the edges actually kind of ended up thick yeah I I have a feeling when I rest it that's going to be a little better
1: so I tell you what I have done and this I did this almost instinctively without thinking so when I scooched it back in Mm -hmm. I sometimes I took the ends and I sort of I don't even know how to describe this twirled it like a little bit like a in opposite directions like a jump rope. Okay. Just to pull it out a little, just to make it soft and pliable, almost that stretching out of it, making it just maybe a half inch longer, you know. as I, Okay. And once it once I squished it all together and I had one long rope, that's when I did that twirling thing. I can't even describe it. I don't even know how to describe this. No,
0: actually, like a jump rope totally yeah. describes it, and that's better than what I did. And it actually gets to what went wrong for me because. Once you have that long skinny thing, then you spiral it up on itself.
1: Yes. You roll it in. Yes. Right. And and you just put it
0: under the end. Yeah. I know. It's a pretty little knot. Yeah. And then you flatten it again before you fry. Then then you leave it for a little bit and then you take it out and you flatten it.
1: And then I roll it out a little bit with with the rolling pin.
0: Right. And so when I flattened it the second time. Uh Uh-huh. I felt like I was losing... Well, first of all, I wasn't sure how flat to make it the second time.
1: So all I do is I take that little roll, mm-hmm. put it down, and then I just flatten it with my palm of my hands a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then I put the, my, my little rolling pin and just roll it out. It really isn't so technical. if that Because if, what I find is that when you cook it,
0: uh-huh.
1: one of the things you do at the end of cooking, and I used to see my grandma doing this, and my mom still does it when she gets it. You take it out with a dishcloth, around it, and you sort of squish it. You squish the circles in, so the layers then break up a little bit. It's not going to break up into, like, a, you know how puff pastry, you see the definitive layers? You're not squishing it to create a different shape. You're literally just loosening it up, so when you
0: eat it, it's just a little more broken, you know? Yeah, yeah. well, I have 15 more bowls in there to play with, so... <laughs> Get one good
1: one. <laughs> <laughs> I i personally think the flowers are the pretty. You know, when you roll them up, that's when they look really pretty.
0: <laughs> I do too. I love those. I know. I was really pleased with that. I was like, yeah. oh, I don't really want to roll it out, and then oh. I was really,
1: <laughs> I was
0: really nervous that I was making all of the layers go away, but oh. they, they were there. They were there. You can you can taste them when you eat them. You can sort of. Oh yeah, because I was able to kind of almost unwrap it like a cinnamon roll or something.
1: Yeah, you can almost pull bits off it. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. And that, and I'm, glad, I'm glad you did that because I wanted to ask you. So it, it was different to a chapati, right?
0: Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely okay. came apart the way okay. it had come together. You know, okay, you've done it. You've done it. <laughs> OK, yeah, well, oh, and one last question. How so how do you tell what's
1: too hot? You don't want it smoking. I think that's what it is because it t- can get a bit smoky. Yeah, mine. That's I use, and that's why I use ghee instead of butter.
0: Yeah, because well, actually, it's funny, because I was going to try to cheat this recipe with butter initially. <laughs> yeah. And then,
1: because, you, <laughs> you, you know, use butter to make it, I just well, cook it with a little bit of ghee or
0: an oil that's a high smoke point, you know, yeah, that's exactly yeah, because just, you know, we're trying to limit trips to the grocery store and everything right now. And yeah. I was like, Oh, I don't know, maybe I'll try it with butter. And then when I read the part about something with a high smoking point, I was like, No, this really has to be ghee. Right. I'm gonna yeah. make a mess with butter. Yeah.
1: And I have to be honest with you that sometimes it does get a little smoky, but I try to just I have to keep an eye on the heat with the pan I use, you know, yeah. in between sort of um, pieces. I take the pan off the heat for a bit, you know, I don't just leave it sitting just to cool it. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, is there anything else you'd like to share about this recipe, your grandmother, your family? I,
1: I don't think there's much else unless you have any other questions. It's been so much fun. And I will say this to you. Are you ever going to make your photos into a coffee table book?
0: (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to lie. It would definitely be part of the dream, wouldn't it?
1: (laughs) I I think it'd make a beautiful coffee table book with a little blurb about the person and the recipe and whatever, you know. But the photos are the main thing because your photos are
0: stunning. Thank you. That really does mean a lot to me. And it's so motivating to me to take photos that are meaningful to other people. That is so fulfilling.
1: It really is. Cause I, I, I feel so privileged that I get a chance to talk about my home and more importantly, my, my grandma and cause she was huge influence in my life, you know?
0: Well, and really as sincerely as I can say this, I do feel privileged that I get to hear these stories and really bear witness to them. I think yeah. that's I want to say that life really mattered. A woman who had seven children to take care of by the time she was in her early 20s and did it with a smile on her face. That's the kind of person that I want to hear about and talk about.
1: Yeah. And she, her mark, you know, think about this. I'm, it's truth 2020.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm living miles and miles and miles away from where I was born. And, and now I have a, gra- a son, mm-hmm. a great grandson. And it, the story goes on.
0: Absolutely. Right.
1: You guys on. So yeah. Thank you so much.
0: Absolutely. My pleasure. All right, Shakila, we'll right. be in touch. Okay. Hey, okay, thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks so, so much to Shakila. All of the ways you can contact Shakila plus this roti paratha recipe are on my site. Also, because Shakila mentioned my food photography, I wanted to let you know that there are many free food photography resources on my blog from the Storied Shot series to downloadables like Fundamentals of Food Photography and How to Make Ugly Food Beautiful. Just head over to thestoriedrecipe.com to find them. Next week, I'll be releasing an episode with Anela Malik, foodie and advocate for the marginalized. She'll be discussing her childhood, her maximalist philosophy towards food, and her tagline, Food is Political. Please make sure to subscribe now to get that episode. And always, always, I so appreciate any time you share an episode with a friend or when you leave a review. Both help me so very much. Thank you and have a great week, my friends.